Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You know, a topic I think that is uh, interesting to think about within the Jewish tradition, but also just sort of in our contemporary lives from this episode. And one thing we haven't talked about as we were sort of schmoozing right now is, uh, what's his name? The poet, well, I haven't blanked on his name. Azaria. Azaria, thank you. Azaria and his poems and Nati's whole thing to him of like, this is inappropriate. Like you're a religious guy and you're writing this like erotic love poetry. Um, that's like very risque and very kind of like graphic. And he's like, it's poetry. That's what poetry is. You know, and there's sort of this whole back and forth, um, which is a very Jewish conversation. Um, you know, Shira Shirin, the Song of Songs is also very risque and also very graphic and um, erotic as uh, as we talked about a little earlier. And there was a similarly kind of a a conversation in rabbinic tradition about how do we view Song of Songs, Shira Shirin. Is it the Rabbi Akiva says it is the Kodesh HaKodeshim, it is the Holy of Holies. It's like the highest level text. Um, but like when you read it as written, it's it's like a love poetry with a lot of, you know, descriptions of, of kissing. And, you know, it's, a, again, pretty risque, um, sort of like Azaria's poems. And so I think what it made me think about and sort of where we wanted to go for this conversation was thinking about, I guess, there's sort of like two separate but connected conversations, one related to, say, like TV movies, art, and sort of like a visual depictions that are that are let's say not necessarily tsanua or modest um you know obviously a lot of people in the from world don't have tvs or watch movies or go to art museums or so forth or take art classes um because of the kinds of images that you're exposed to and then there's sort of like a separate but connected conversation about poetry literature and so forth where there's nothing visually visibly that you're seeing but you're, you know, you can be reading descriptions of these trysts and sort of sexual encounters and so forth. And you're not seeing anything, but it allows your Im- imagination to kind of create images of what you're reading um, that, you know, might not be so so modest per se. Um, I mean, even Song of Songs <laughs> kind of can do that. Um, and I think a tension we see in this episode is sort of the role of arts within the life of religious characters and sort of is do you is there like a responsibility if you're religious to hold off sort of stay away in some ways from aspects of the arts and even creation of art if you're an artist if you're a poet um because it's sort of it's not sending it's not modest so so that was that's kind of the direction i wanted to um you know, to open up in this conversation. And of course, as I said, you see sort of Nazi and um, Azaria debating this. And Azaria is like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no, there's no contradiction between being an artist. You know, this is, this is like, it's art, it's poetry. Um, Nazi doesn't feel the same way. So that's, I want to a little bit bring that in and also kind of bring it into modern life and sort of where we draw lines about, what we watch, what we don't watch, what we read, what we don't read, because it's sort of, we feel like it's, um, you know, it's sort of immodest or sort of inappropriate um, things to be thinking about or seeing and so forth. So. So I just want to say, 
Everything yeah. is a great discussion. This is a great discussion. But when I saw that, I really saw it more as Nazi being upset with him talking about his, he like it was his girlfriend and Azaria doesn't know they're dating, I think. So that's a whole other issue, which I think is a little deceptive. But like here it is, all these sexual poems about the girl now he's dating. And right. I think that is actually what was really bothering him. Oh, for sure. For sure. He doesn't <laughs> care about the religious thing. Of course not. <laughs> you know? No, it's just an excuse. And it's sort of the excuse is like, but yeah, I mean, look for Ruud as well. Her boyfriend is writing these erotic love poems about his ex-girlfriend and then give, leaving, a, leaving a copy by her door. Like, right? So obviously that's sort of in the context of the episode, but it sort of brings up this larger, I think this larger point, um, at least the way that Nazi's framing it, whether or not he actually believes it, of like, you shouldn't be doing this. And Rosario's like, this is what I do. This is my profession. What are you talking about? Um, you know, so I think it's just sort of a, a you know, a, an interesting to me, you know, um, question that we have in our lives. Do we, do we draw such lines? Do we, um, do we limit ourselves in what we take in artistically because of our norms of modesty? Yeah, Karen. But then, Nati at the end, when he was talking to whatever her name is, where he was repeating the poem, the new poem, and he thought it was wonderful that you reckon with me and I'm in Africa, whatever that whole poem thing was. You're saying that the poem he wrote for Uts. You're saying that Ru thought it was great. Nazi. Remember yeah, Nazi at the very end? What? Yeah, I was going to say Nazi also thought it was great. Yeah, at the end when he was talking. When he was talking to Tequila about it. Right, neither so of them think, are As long as it wasn't about her, he was okay. Interesting. And for Ru, as long as it was about her, <laughs> she was okay. It doesn't matter if it's a good poem. Um, you know. But then also it was interesting because first of all the Reut poem wasn't sexy like the Tehillah poem was. Right, right. But also in the end, he didn't feel anything. And he even told Reut at the end, you know, the poem's not good and I don't love you. Right. So you know, so it sort of kind of circles back to that idea about art and passion and intensity and all that stuff. Yeah, and he's like, I made up, I came up with something, but like, it wasn't good because I don't actually feel passion towards you. And like, this guy was right, you know? You're boring. The poem was boring. That's what he, I mean, that's what the guy says. That's what Berger says. And then he's like, yeah, Berger was right about everything, you know? So it's sad, but it's sort of like, he's like, yeah, you're right. It wasn't very good. For Nazi, Nazi's like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Again, I think you're right. Because it's not about to eat like, Nazi's fine with it, you know? Um, yeah, Rebecca Leonard. Yeah, it was interesting, the Rayut poem, um, when it said in the English subtitles about, you know, coming to do a reckoning, it was the word cheshbon, which is like accounting business. So it was kind of like a play, I guess, on what she did for a living, that it was coming to do an accounting, but you're coming to do a reckoning. And Somehow it in the English it took on a different meaning, mm. and then it was interesting because Nati um, uh, really liked it and thought it was excellent. And then um, Tahila said that uh, it, 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 it was too exposed. It was exposed. It exposed her too much, or it, someone was exposed, and so she thought that it was too exposing, too erotic 
to to revealing. So she thought the Rayut poem, she had kind of the same reaction that I think Nati had to um, Azaria's poems about Tehila. So it was kind of a, you know, a reversal. But then interesting that she doesn't feel the way about that way about the poems about her. She doesn't feel exposed in all you know, these poems about her that are, you know, much more erotic, it seems like. So it's sort of interesting to note that it's a, about someone else, you know. I mean, Tehila's feeling that jealousy a little bit. That, you know, we were talking about Rude and Nati feeling before. So um, that could be part of it. Uh, okay, Norm and Rachel have a few, few hands up. I, I just wanted to say that, you know, Nadi says he approves of this or he doesn't approve that. None of these people are, are, are models of moral consistency, but Nadi especially is not. Sometimes he may understand a poem, sometimes he may not, sometimes he's offended, sometimes he's not. But it's very much, I think, trying to influence people or please people. Um, and I don't think of his... Steve, I like or dislike something as being necessarily an embodiment of sincerity. Right. Yeah, I think we've seen with Nazi always that he sort of explains things in ways that aren't actually what he's feeling. You know, he'll he'll justify or like when we're talking about this as a religious person, you shouldn't be doing this. It's like it has nothing to do with that. It's sort of his way of, of trying to get people when he's for feeling jealous or feeling angry or feeling whatever, you know, is, um, I wanted to add in that Azaria telling Reut he didn't love her is in my view, the best quality I've seen about Azaria so far in this series, because he seemed to me to be like lots of bluster and he writes poetry because it's an excuse to drink a lot. <laughs> so, so I have not been impressed with him at all. As <laughs> and finally he does something honest. And so I, I want to give him credit for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eileen, were you about to say something? No, oh, I was going to say I find him a very repulsive figure. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the most likable guy, you know. There's anything genuine about him whatsoever, and uh, I, I think he's uh, all bluster too. I, I was glad he told Rose that, and I know it upset her, but it was the best thing for her. <laughs> and it was pretty clear that he didn't really get feelings for him. Right, he just wants money, yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. true. You know? And it was sort of like, okay, here's another, you know, female, right? I think she's not a replacement for Tila. He, like, had passion for Tila. So it's like, okay, it's someone who's, like, eh, nice to have around and, you know, is willing to subsidize my work. <laughs> like, all these things are, like, nice, but he clearly doesn't have stronger feelings for her. Um, right. Not sure he was really interested in losing his meal tickets. I think you're right about that. But yeah, it's true. He might not have he might not have uh, been so forthcoming if not for being a little bit drunk. No my shots. Well, Michael had his hand up. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that I was writing typing here 
that uh, it's clear to me from the beginning, all uh, Azaria wanted was the shekels. Beginning and end from root. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, <laughs> I, I think that there's something about that kind of relationship that I, that is actually more I think, common than people recognize. Maybe not so much in terms of the money piece, but I think that when it's very clear to Azaria that she likes him, right? Like that's, it's a very known fact. There's no hiding that. And He's basically taking the whole relationship for a ride because it's also enabling him to do things that he didn't have the ability to do before when he didn't have someone interested in him um, or kind of helping him along or supporting him or holding his hand or, you know, it's, it's easy, it's easy to, to, it's easy to feel um, kind of swept up in emotion when you know that someone cares for you even if you don't care for them back because you're being taken care of so like this is great someone's cooking for me and so well she doesn't cook for him but someone's taking care of me and someone's paying for me to do what I want to do and maybe I do have feelings for you because you're taking care of me and I mean that's obviously not a healthy way of being in a relationship but I do think that it's (coughs) excuse me it's a type of abusive relationship that he feels very comfortable being in um, because he's getting what he wants. She gets to think that he likes her, loves her, and they just continue on. Interestingly, what I thought was so fascinating about their relationship at the end of this episode was that as soon as she dropped him, she became so much more productive again in her own life. Because now she didn't have to worry about taking care of him anymore. As soon as she knew that she was no longer responsible for his behavior, she was a much more productive human being. And uh, I, I think that there are there are many people probably who can speak to types of relationships like that. Uh, that you that that once you're able to feel like either you are being taken care of, or at least you're in a relationship where you're taking care of one another, or you're rid of the person who was who was using that from you um you're much more able to take care of yourself and and uh... i was going to make one comment on that and oh sort of great thinking. yeah sort of i mean i think that your the root piece was very interesting at the end you're reading it as like oh she became more productive i think the way i would read it is she is sort of like Forget about emotional stuff. I'm just like going to ignore all that and just dive in full force into work so I don't have to think about what I'm feeling, right? Which is like often the thing that people do Um, when like emotional things are hard is sort of like, okay, I'm just going to like dive in full force into work and just distract myself from what I'm actually feeling by going all out in, you know, and sort of like, so I don't know. I mean, yes, she's being more productive, but it's also it's sort of a defense mechanism to prevent her from grappling with what she's actually feeling. Totally. I just think that there's also, (laughs) there's also something to be said for the fact that those were things that she wasn't focused on because they didn't have to do with him. And so now look, all the, all the pieces that she was telling her secretary to like take care of and help her with um, putting back into place 
they were all things that she kind of left by the wayside. And yes, I think that it's a way of distraction and all of that. Um, but also like, all right, I'm back in it. I'm back in the game just for me and not to take care of someone else. Um, I think Rabbi Barbara's up. I, and I do agree that I think that the assistance blowing up over here, ladies and gentlemen. Well, okay. 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 Everyone agrees. The assistant accountant is definitely interested in weird. Really? Why do we all think that? Because he asked her if she likes her book. She, he asked about the guy. You know, about Azaria. He's like, and he's so. always finding reasons to kind of lurk around and talk and linger. Ongoing. And, you know. Wow. I did not pick up on any of that, but okay, great. You all seem to be, you're voting with your feet, so you seem to be right. Okay, Rabbi Barbara. Unmute yourself. <laughs> Barbara, you're, you're, you're muted. Okay. This whole episode for me was really. I mean, there was a lot of tension and there was a lot of sorrow. Um, and I was, I began by thinking really about Nati and Tequila, that he walks on eggshells with her or she walks on eggshells with him. Nobody is really being their true selves because when he gets upset, then she backs off. And when she gets upset, then he wonders if it's about him. And it's, it's very tension-filled. And the other, the other piece that I just want to throw out now, um, I, first of all, I agree with uh, Rabbi Schatz about the, um, I'm sorry, I lost my thought. But the one thing I do want to say is, I, I think that when Amir goes to the yeshiva, it's just painful beyond belief. And it's a real growth experience for him because he's able to deal with something that's been hanging around for apparently a long time. Yeah. Well, I think part of what um, the other Rabbi Pernick and I spoke about last week is that, you know, there's, there's some, there's a certain kind of stereotype also that he's supposed to be in yeshiva, right? Or at least, um, Yifat thinks that he should be in yeshiva, and it's really not what he wants to do. He's really not interested in that. Um, I mean, I think he's interested in learning, but but it, it seems to be that there are other things that he's interested in professionally doing. Um, and I think you're right that you know bringing in that parallel story of him as a teenager shows that there's also just a lot of angst around being in a yeshiva. Um, and uh and, and what it meant for him to go back into that kind of um milieu right and back into that kind of situation where he was going to be learning all the time and potentially not the best person in the room or maybe was the best person in the room but wasn't getting the kind of credit based on what he looked like or what his background was or the fact that he wasn't popular you know whatever whatever that um whatever that angst was for him but uh it seems to be that he's kind of being forced to have an identity that he doesn't actually have uh, based on the stereotype of his sect of Judaism. Right. And, and I really get his wanting to go to the farm. Yeah. He, he needs to get away and clear his head. Cause I mean, I don't know. I've not never had a baby, so I've never been seeing sonograms or anything, but, I think it's great he wanted to go to the sonogram, but it wasn't about him. Yeah. And he just was, 
being childish, I thought. Oh, interesting. I actually felt really bad. I've also not had a baby yet, but um, I I felt really badly for him in that moment because I think that it reminded me, for those of you who watch Friends, it reminded me of an episode (laughs) in Friends where he can't see the, he can't see the baby. It's a much smaller baby at that point. She just found out she was pregnant and is Rachel and Ross. And, uh, and if you've never seen friends, I just ruined a lot of the series for you. So I'm really sorry. Um, but they, uh, they go in for the sonogram and he can't see anything and he, or she can't see anything, sorry. And he can see it. And she starts lying that she can see it. And then the doctor leaves and she starts bawling because I can't see the baby, but I really, I really felt, I felt bad for him because I do think similar to what Lisa just said about them the little lamb, him being lost like a little lamb. I think he's, he's trying to both physically and metaphorically like look for the thing that's going to bring meaning to his life. And he can't find this baby in the sonogram. Meanwhile, I wanted to be like, sir, it's right in front of you. It was right there. (laughs) It's so obvious right there, but he, he really couldn't, he couldn't find that thing that's supposed to now bring meaning to his life. And um, I agree that, you know, it kind of became a little bit more about him than maybe it should have. But I I don't know. I felt bad. I have a soft place in my heart for him. And I felt badly that he couldn't uh, he couldn't see what was going on. Uh, Denise. So I felt like when he saw the lamb in the chat, there was something about the lamb and yeah. that he's lost like the little lamb. Um, I kind of took it as like a metaphor because um, that was one of the signs that Moshe Rabbeinu was Moshe Rabbeinu, that he cared about every sheep and he carried back the little guy that was lost. Stuff. Um, he's and a novel at Tom, right? He's more humble than anyone else, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah. yeah, he's humble and he cares and he's attuned and and sort of a healing full circle moment from what happened in the yeshiva where the guy's like, I don't know who you are and I don't remember you and what kind of teacher he might want to be himself and then turning around and noticing the little lamb and stopping for him. And, you know, it just felt like very symbolic. Yeah, it was a really beautiful moment. Um, Rai Parnik, did you want to go back to your topic of... Uh inappropriate poetry uh sure i mean i'm glad that people laughed when i just said that because that wasn't actually your topic but but that kind of uh, no i mean uh, yeah i mean i think all of these things are interesting i'm always happy to have the conversation go where, where it goes um yeah do you have anything to say about inappropriate poetry or literature rabbi shots do you do you draw i was saying before like I remember and this is not poetry, but yeah. I remember like when Game of Thrones was on air, and uh, my roommates, one of my roommates in the city, like watched Game of Thrones, and he asked if I watched it. I was like, no, and he was like, yeah, it's probably better because it's like you're in rabbinical school, like you probably shouldn't be watching that, you know. It's sort of like those questions of like, do you do you draw lines in those ways, whether related to you know? You're asking me. I'm saying it's a question. Sure, for you, is that a question? Do you draw lines on what you're? what you will see or read or so forth for smooth reasons. Um, It's a really great question. Um, I don't, I don't know that I've ever been in a situation where something's been presented to me that would be so inappropriate that I wouldn't watch it or wouldn't read it. Or um, I, I think that because, because I, 
studied music and like there's a part of me, a very large part of me that um, I guess would call myself an artist, uh, though not a visual artist and not a um, not someone who's in film or anything like that. I, I do think I do recognize the argument around just exposing yourself to art and not over sexualizing, for example, like the human body. If you go to um, like a museum that has paintings or sculptures of uh, the human body in the nude, like I don't find that to be inappropriate or not sneeze. I think that's just, that is an art form that shows expression of the human body. And then there's a boundary, right? There's also ways of seeing the human body depicted in really inappropriate ways. Um, and, and, and I don't know that I've, again, as I kind of started off by saying, I don't know that I've ever put myself or been put in a situation where I felt as though as a rabbi or as a rabbinical student, or really just as myself, that something has been so inappropriate that I shouldn't be in the room. Um, so I don't think so. I mean, I, I didn't watch Game of Thrones just because it's not my kind of TV, not because there was like sex and violence. I watched Bridgerton, which had tons of sex. So, you know, I think there's, I think there are types of, um, types of entertainment that's going to, that in modern day is going to have a sexuality and, uh, depictions that of, of life that I wouldn't, you know, put on my Bima, <laughs> but, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't choose to, to not watch those things because of my rabbinic status. That might not have been a very exciting. No, it's good. I actually, I have two, two things to say. So one was, um, some of you were, might've been there, New Orleans people like on Tisha B'Av, we were watching this movie uprising, which is a very long, <laughs> two movies, um, but uh, about the worst, I get uprising. And I, I mean, I didn't watch it before we screened it. And, you know, we were watching Within the Sanctuary. And, I mean, it's about the worst, like, you know, uprising. But, like, there are scenes that are a little bit more, let's say, risque than I, you know, uh, if I had known, I was like, a little, uh, I don't know if I would necessarily show this in chill. Um, so, but, I mean, obviously, it wasn't a sexual thing. I mean, it was, a, you know, about sort of the story of the, the Warsaw Ghetto. But still, it was a thing that at least I was, like, a, definitely conscious of. Um, the other thing is, you know, since my dad just popped onto the, the call, um, and I think this week was the week of the uh, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, issue right? And um, which, I, you know, I've always sort of like, they say, if you don't want that issue, send a thing saying you don't want that issue. So I send a thing saying it's not that issue. Um, and there's always like clergy people writing letters about how like, oh, this is a terrible thing. And my dad uh, once wrote a, a letter to the editor of Sports Illustrated about how Jewish tradition says you can tell you can say that if you want to. Uh... I'm, I'm I'm very thrilled that my son remembers my stories. I, uh, yeah, yeah, classic stories around the seder table. So it was in the fairly late 1970s, and I was visiting my grandmother in uh, Fort Lauderdale. Everybody should have a, a grandparent in Florida, of course. And uh, it was December. Or Not right January. now, Rabbi. It's dangerous but, down there. That's it's, true. Right now, you're absolutely correct. Right now, you're correct. So I think it was actually February break. Anyhow, so um, I wrote a letter because, as Josh said, you know, you always get the very fundamentalist. If I wanted pornography, I would order. I would read Playboy, you know, or whatever. So cancel my subscription, all that. 
So I alluded to that and I said, but the Babylonian Talmud presents a very different view of feminine beauty. And I did change the wording of the Talmud slightly because it referred to the rabbis who were sitting among the ruins of the temple and they saw a beautiful pagan woman. I did not write pagan woman. Uh, and if I remember correctly, they looked at her and they exclaimed, you know, how, how great are your works, O Lord, in wisdom you have made them all. And then I said, and to that I can only add amen. Um, and I got a call from Sports Illustrated. They wanted to verify that this was, in fact, accurate and da 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 and I told them, you know, it definitely was. This is before the internet and, you know, look things up. So, um, yes. That's a great story. I, I will just, I, as the, as the female on, on this panel, um, I will, I will just say that I think there's something, there's like a very fine line between saying that something is being sexualized and something is showing a female body in a different way than, than one might want to see in a SNES community. Right. And this is not actually in relation to the story, more in relation to to what Rabbi Pernick was saying beforehand about clergy saying they don't want the the um, addition at all, right? I think there's, it's one thing to say you're not going to, and these are extremes, obviously, but it's one thing to say, I'm not going to watch a TV show that has lots of sex or pornography. It's another thing to say, I'm not going to look at art that shows a woman undressed, or I'm not going to read poetry that talks about, the female body. I think those are, those are maybe not in the, in the very from world, or even I would just say religious world for, for different, for all religions, right? I think that the more extreme version of that is that you wouldn't want to hear anything about a body being sexualized. But of course, in modern day, we're trying to allow people to show expression in, um, in moderation around, their bodies and how they dress and all those things. And so I just want to put that into focus that there's a, I think there's a fine line there in between. And I actually didn't hear Azaria's poetry as sexually as it was being depicted Mm -hmm. in the episode, nor how we're depicting it right now. I mean, talking about ankles and eyes, like I understand what they were getting at, but I, I don't know if that's really what he meant. And I don't know if that's really what's going on in in the poetry. So um, anyway, I just want to say that. Um, okay, Rebecca or Leonard, and then Rabbi Pranik. Yeah, I was just going to uh, give an example where um, for children, and when you're teaching children and want to perhaps avoid um, uh, uh, the racier parts of, uh, of the yeah. Torah, you yeah. know, and explaining, sometimes it's, sometimes it, well, let me, let me, let me uh, tell you what I was going to tell you. I have a uh, one of these linear uh, translations from like the 1950s that I use sometimes where it has the Hebrew and the English, Hebrew, English. Yes. So I was studying with a group and we came to the part where it talks about, you shall not lie with your mother. You shall not lie with yeah. your sister. That whole thing about who not to have relations with. Mm-hmm. And that whole section was just in Hebrew. It didn't have any English. It was like so obvious that they didn't translate um you know, 
uh, half a dozen or 10 sentences or so. And wow. I thought to myself, gee, I wonder, you know, if the students get to this section and I don't know how young the kids would be that, you know, would have been typically using this. It was, it, it, it was titled a, a linear translation for, for school for school kids. So I, I, I always wondered, you know, when they get to that part, everybody thinks, oh, gee, there, there must be something that we're missing here. Oh, you know, let's find out. So it kind of creates more, more curiosity. But also, interestingly, that same passage was the passage that uh, the fifth graders, when they learned Torah trope and read for the first time in shul, that was, that was also their section, including our daughter, but none of the kids that I'm aware of asked because they didn't read the English translation. They didn't even think about it. They didn't focus on it. They weren't taught that. They were just taught to read the Torah in Hebrew, and that's what they focused on. So, um, you know, if you don't make a big deal about it, maybe the kids don't either. Yeah, there are definitely pieces of Torah. Um, so I was just talking to my grandfather about this, about in terms of, you know, when, when we're, when we're killing off a bunch of people in Deuteronomy, you know, do you, do people sermonize about that from the Bema? Um, and, you know, I think Rabbi Pernick, Rabbi Josh Pernick is nodding that he does. I don't. Um, but I think that there's, there, there is something very interesting about what we teach and when we teach it in terms of like the rape of Dina, right? Or, or different aspects of what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? There, there's a lot of like sexual things in the Torah that we don't explicitly teach to our kids until potentially they're older or maybe even at all. Um, and, and how do we pick and choose that which is appropriate or that which is just in the Torah that we should explain in a way that's developmentally appropriate? Um, the fact that those were the verses that they learned in Hebrew, I think that was probably just a mistake in general because they should have taught them what they were what they were learning in terms of trope, but also in terms of content. Um, not a mistake that they didn't tell them what they were reading, but maybe a mistake that they didn't choose a passage that they could have really taught them uh, what the content was. So, yeah, I think it goes kind of hand in hand in terms of this this um, conversation of what do we choose to explain, what do we choose to just kind of let gloss over our, in this case, children in, in the educational setting. I just want to say it's a mistake they make every year. Oh, they've done it more than they do it every year that way? Yep. It's, oh. It must be the time of year, the Shabbat that works out, and they... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to... Maybe before they see the Parsha. I'm going to definitely ask a question about that this year, because <laughs> I think that's, that is silly. Um, okay, Rabbi Pernick and then Terrell. <laughs> So I guess the first thing is just to point out in terms of the violence, which which Josh, you know, loves to, to focus on. But we I think a lot of us ignore. And, and to me, the clearest example of that is the Megillah. So yeah. in reform tradition, uh, you know, we don't read the entire Megillah. And I think for a lot of people, the Megillah ends with Haman and his sons being hung and Mordecai becomes prime minister and they live happily ever after. But there's a lot of bloodshed that comes after that that most people don't even know because that's where we end. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, of course, there still is that order to kill the Jews and there's a big war and there's a lot of killing, etc. But the other part I wanted to talk about was just having to do with the female sexuality, etc. And that is the fact that we've seen in many Orthodox publications where it's not even a question of women's bodies where they would take remember that very famous scene in the war room with hillary clinton etc and they just 
eliminate the women. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Images are just erased. Yeah. Rabbi Pern, your son and I, um, when we were at, uh, when we were at one of our APAC, um, conferences early on in the fellowship, there was a whole presentation around different education that was happening. I, I don't remember where, but it, the, the whole point of it was this is not good education for the Jews, basically, is what is the was the thesis of the presentation. And uh, and I won't share like who was doing the presentation or how or what what kind of was the outcome of it. But one of the things that that you saw in kind of the PDF pictures that you saw of the curriculum was that the women's faces were blacked out so that you weren't seeing any women. And again, like that sexualization is not just like the sexualization of a body, but also just knowing the existence of a woman. Um, That wasn't the point of the presentation. I just happened to notice that. Um, But it is, it is a part of what we're seeing in like very, very Haredi and, you know, right, right, right wing educational materials as well in terms of sexualization. And I actually shared a little bit earlier, um, you know, a piece that was talking about sort of Shira Shirim and the way that um, it was actually an, ar- an article in the London Jewish Chronicle by a, by a rabbi who was talking, kind of complaining about the way that even like liturgical poems like Shira Shirim are often so brutally butchered in their translation to a, sort of retranslate in, in line with the traditional rabbinic interpretation of it being about God and Israel to where like it it's not readable as a poem and it is not a translation of what it says, you know, and, and saying like, you know, this rabbi was like, I teach my students Shira Shirim because I think it teaches about healthy relationships. And it's like a way of, you know, for middle schoolers or high schoolers, like talking about relationships and talking about courtship and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, it's, you know, there's a down, of course, there's like the downside when you're just trying to sweep all that under, under the rug. It's, it was actually interesting. He talks about the difference between sort of Sephardi and um, Ashkenazi communities and, and sort of because Sephardi communities were living in Arab lands where there was sort of a tradition of poetry that was sort of mixed piety with, you know, eroticism in certain ways. So like Jewish poetry of that era in that area, similarly kind of, you know, like a lot of like this, you know, the Kabbalists and Sfat, there's a lot of sort of stuff that sort of mixes piety and, and, and sexuality in certain ways. Whereas somehow Ashkenazi Jews were in Christian lands, you know, because Christianity in so many ways sort of, you know, original sin, sexuality is bad and so forth. Jews in those lands kind of took that same idea and in some ways then took it to the extreme of like totally staying far away from anything to be read as sexuality. Um, So, but it's sort of a cultural difference between those, you know, kind of Sephardi and and Ashkenazi communities. Terrell and then Denise. I I definitely know growing up, we talk about certain sections, the story of Onan, Onan spilling his seed on the floor in Genesis. We covered that never as kids. Like they casually jumped over that chapter and that whole section. In fact, everything dealing with like Jacob and Tamar, but definitely the spilling the seed on the floor. It would have been really hard to explain that one to kids. I mean, yeah. I remember when I taught third grade, sorry, I'm just- when I to, when I taught third grade, uh, my mentor teacher for you know this is when I was doing my master's like we taught Parshat Vayetze and Vayishlach and she was adamant that she wouldn't skip anything 
but like, okay, so now you're dealing with, you're dealing with Tina and she's like, we're not going to skip it. We're not going to like spend a lot of time and go in depth on this story. It'll be a story that we kind of, kind of skim through a little bit quicker. Um, but there's sort of that idea of like, we're not going to skip anything. So, but there's different educational philosophies about that. Uh, you know. Yeah, Denise. So Renee brought up in the chat about did something potentially inappropriate and violating happen to Amir when he was made to sleep in the hallway. And I didn't catch it at all, but later, I think especially, first of all, I think that happens. Yeah. And especially like that he was considered, you know, less popular, whatever, maybe no one would stand up for him. Maybe no one would notice if he wasn't there. And then, you know, how the guy was just like, yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember. But with no questions, not like, what do you mean? Wait, oh, were you there that year that we had to sleep in the hall? Oh my God, I can't believe you remember that. That was crazy. Or, oh, we did that every year. Nothing was, I don't remember. I don't remember. But when someone's not curious, they do remember generally. Um, and that just makes me think about that juxtaposition between Nazi being so over the top, like how dare you write about these things? And then this thing happening. And I, I think that happens a lot, you know, when, when any kind of healthy expression is completely taboo and looked upon as like, you know, unmentionable, then you're going to have all these unhealthy expressions and no, and no way to deal with those. Sure. I'm not sure that I'm following exactly how you're connecting those two things, but I definitely agree with the end with your end statement that, um, and we see this a lot in, um, in, in areas of, areas of society where boys are not taught about female bodies and females are not taught about, about boys' bodies. And then all of a sudden they're getting married, probably pretty young in those societies and they don't know what to do. And they're supposed to have babies and they're like, well, how does that come to be? Um, so we, we do see a lot of what you're describing in terms of lack of education can also lead to and I don't mean abuse in terms of like sexual abuse, but just like abuse of, 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 uh, experience, right? Like not knowing how to go about those types of experiences. I'm not saying that you have to have those experiences to know, but the knowledge of at least like what the body parts are and what they're supposed to do and what their form and function is, right? I think that is, that's very important to, to a process by which you expect healthy relationship. So I totally, totally agree with that. I don't, I don't know that I connected it to the Amir part, but, but I agree with the final statement you made. Um, right. So I, I had a question and I don't know if either Rabbi Schatz or, or Rabbi Josh um, knows the answer or anybody else, but you know, we see this almost like fear of women among many in the Hasidic community. And yet the Hasidic community is very tied to Kabbalah and Kabbalah is very sexual. So I'm just kind of curious as to how on the one hand, you know, they can't show a woman, but on the other hand, they can describe sexual union and everything else like that in, in Kabbalah. I mean, uh, do you want to answer? You want me to? I mean, I have a very specific, like very basic answer, but you can be more, so, I mean, yeah, so this, uh, you know, I'm actually going to pull up this, uh, this article I was mentioning before, uh, one second, um, because it, it sort of talked about the, here we are, this one, um, 
read this article from this rabbi who was talking about, you know, kind of the Sephardi Kabbalistic thing. And he talks about this, you know, this Spanish Jewish poet um, uh, and rabbi Israel Nahara, who, you know, was a student of the Kabbalist, you know, Isaac Luria, and was like, you know, and he was blacklisted and so forth. And nevertheless, he wrote Yari Bot, which is, you know, a popular Zemer, a Shabbat tune. So there's sort of a lot of, you know, the, the, the like Hasidic Nusach is referred to as Nusach Sfard. And it's sort of, even though it's coming out of Ashkenazi places for the most part, it's actually sort of more, in certain ways, more connected with Sephardi culture. And so there is in that Kabbalistic slash Sephardi, and there's sort of a lot of overlap between Kabbalistic and, you know, and Hasidic and Sephardi cultures. Like there is that understanding of, for one thing, in, Kabbal- in Kabbalism of, you know, so everything is sexual in Kabbalism, essentially. So, like, how, you know, that, right, there's a reason why we sing those songs, including Yari Bon on Friday night, which is the marriage, right? You stand up at the end of Lechad to welcome in the bride, right? So it's, it's all of this mystical union stuff, which is very sexualized. Um, and and even some of the poems are very sexualized. So that's, you know, that like is a thing that exists. And then, you know, I think, the more mainstream Ashkenazi response is just, again, sort of coming out of this Christian culture that's very anti-sexuality sort of was like, no, stay far away from that. So you you sort of see both. And then in like the mainstream Haredi world, now you have both of those impulses sort of simultaneously, where at one level you're talking about the union with God in very sexual terms, but then you're also not showing pictures of women in newspapers. That what you just said, I think, is the answer. I think that the answer is that not that everything else you said was not lovely, but I think what you just said was was the was the most important part, which is Kabbalistic poetry, theory, expression is people and God. It's not talking necessarily about this. I mean, it can be disseminated into thoughts and theories about how a man and a woman is also, are also supposed to be um, in relationship. But for the most part, especially Kabbalah Shabbat, we're not talking about a man and a woman's sexual experience or relationship. We're talking about a person's sexual experience with, with God, right. And relationship with God. So I think that that's a very different reality and connection um, using both both meanings of the word connection there, then then talking about a man and a woman having sexual experience, which to the Haredi Hasidic whatever world would see as as much more inappropriate than imagining yourself having a a union with with the divine. Just and- one more thing. One more thing. I'm going to pull up because I just you know from from before. Um, you know, there's a section, this mission in Sanhedrin, which says that if you read a verse from song, Sharm Sher Shirim from Song of Songs, but you render it in the form of a secular song, right? It, you introduce evil to the world. You know, this idea that master, you know, the Torah girds itself with sackcloth and says, you know, master, holy one, uh, master of the universe, your children have rendered me like a harp on which, ch- on which clowns play. This idea of like, if you take this, erotic poetry which is understood to be about god in israel it's holy of holds but if you read it as just shot erotic poetry it's terrible and you've introduced evil into the world so it's it's sort of like you can be as erotic as you want it's about god 
Bernardo. It reminds, it remind, this has really nothing to do with this topic, but it reminds me of the most recent chuva about using secular music to daven, like using like a Leonard Cohen song, for example, to to sing one of the, the one of these songs. The Rebbe, you just said? That's what Avi Weiss always refers to Leonard Cohen as the Rebbe. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it just reminds me of that, that taking something that you see as secular, in this case, it's the opposite, but taking something that you see as secular and kind of upgrading its holiness and attaching it to a, a tefillah of sorts. And in this case, using Song of Songs and kind of breaking it down so much or, you know, making it into a quote mashup, right, that it would be something secular and therefore become too sexualized that now it's uh, now it's inappropriate. I actually think Amir's Chavruta has a lot of like Leonard Cohen in him thinking about that meaning like coming right Leonard Cohen's his whole thing is he's like from this prominent Jewish wealthy family who goes to Shara Shemaim in Montreal right and then like and then he's sort of everything is a response to like that anti-bourgeois thing which is like Amir Stavruta it's very much that same model of like you know that sort of response to the upbringing right I forgot that using Leonard Cohen was actually very very a very close connection I should have said like yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but I was thinking about that before that. I was like, this guy, he's like very much like the Leonard Cohen figure. Yeah, sorry. Get, out of, get me out of this bourgeois world. I don't want to go to Shabbat dinner where no one's saying what they actually feel. You know, it's very Leonard Cohen. So. Um, everyone seemed to be, and I, we only have a few more seconds, but everyone seems to be very focused and excited about this moment with Amir um, and his teacher at the yeshiva. Um I just wanted to like open that up. There are a lot of comments in the chat, but I wanted to see if anybody wanted to say anything or maybe if Rabbi Pernick wanted to say something um, about that particular scene or particular moment uh, in Amira's kind of exposure of his own background. Any thoughts? Did people get it all out in the chat? Yeah, Renee. I kind of said it in the chat. I kind of had thoughts that maybe there was some inappropriateness that took place between the rabbi and Amir when he was younger. And I, I even I even think that maybe he was concerned about the boy that he was in taking care of, not that the boy was at that yeshiva, but that maybe he felt like the boy also had some kind of trauma that happened to him, and it spiked it in Amir. It like brought it up to to the level of where he became aware of it again, and that's why he needed to go back to that yeshiva to t- confront the rabbi. Interesting. I, definitely, I don't know. Maybe it's just the therapist in me coming out in there. But I definitely didn't go there. But uh, mm-hmm. yes, yes. But, but I do think that there's. I mean, there's obviously, unfortunately, basis for that. You know, in and many different religions in terms of having religious advisors and mentors and um, teachers inappropriately taking students under their wings in many different ways, and so it's possible. I. I would have a hard time imagining that that was the case, and at least in the way that Amir was so unknown to this guy. Um, but maybe that was an act. I don't know. I, it's a really interesting point that I had not thought of, um, and that I hope is not true, <laughs> even even though it's a make believe story. Rabbi Barbara, I and mean, he could have been pretending that he didn't know, it, couldn't remember him, because then if he acknowledged him. Yeah, have to acknowledge all that other stuff. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I just hadn't thought about that that much of a plot line behind that. Right, uh, and someone, as someone said in the chat, um, you know, why is this one child 
out of 100, the one, why is one child even put in the hall? Let alone, alone it happened to be this one. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I wouldn't say, I think part of why I've come to that, right, I sort of also came to the, the idea that it may have been something inappropriate was because we're just bombarded with it day in and day out now. Yeah. And other other centuries or other uh, other decades probably wouldn't have come to that kind of thinking or even thought about it. But also, um, you know, I really, you know, I think about being a teacher and when something happens and you need to debrief the kids and here is this, their Rebbe being accused of being, you know, heartless or mean, whatever. And they're just all standing around. And what, what are they thinking? Yeah. You know, and is somebody going to try to debrief them? Yeah. Because that's how rumors get started. <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I'm sure we've all, unfortunately, I'm sure we've all had teachers or mentors who have treated us in ways that we learned much more about how to not treat others than we did about how to educate. Um, I can, I can think of two teachers in, in particular that if I had had the opportunity to share with the class that came after me about how I was treated by that particular teacher, it might be that that, that those students would have been, you know, more protected in terms of their own learning and their own uh, self-confidence around learning than I was being exposed to those teachers. And as a teacher myself, I think I'm a better teacher for having bad teachers <laughs> um, because I know how I don't want to teach and how I don't want to treat students. So, yeah, I, I know that's not that's not the extreme that you're talking about, thank God, for my own life, but... Um, but I do unfortunately think that that is happening in, in society. And I hope that that's not what Amir was alluding to. Um, I agree with you. And sometimes when you're the age of those boys, it may not, you may not realize the lesson that it's teaching you. Yeah. Yeah. For that, sure. it, that it comes much, yeah, yeah. It comes much later. Totally. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, call on your, I was going to call on your dad. He seems to have something that he wants to say or show. No, he doesn't. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we will be back same time, same place next week. Um, only one I, episode. I, what we need to do two at some point. So in order to finish before Shana. So it can be next week. So the thing about, okay. You and I can talk about this offline. We will let everybody know. I think next week we should do one. Oh. oh. I think. Because I imagine there will be another. Yeah. I think so. Right, you and I talk about this offline. We can let everybody know. So that's a good idea. Okay, great. Um, lovely to see you all. And uh, have a great day. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.